Okay, so what was the music? Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, we did this for two different reasons. Number one, it's Sarah's birthday. So, number two, because as we're going through all this stuff, and, and, and we're talking about kind of the end of the Age of Enlightenment, beginning of the Age of Revolution, we're going to talk about pirates. There you go. Cheering for pirates. Actually, not cheering for them, just that we're talking about them. That's right. Oh, okay. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah likes Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, now, what's interesting is, I, 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 I told my brother who's, who teaches history that we're going to talk about pirates, and he's like, in church history? Why are you talking about pirates? Like, no, no, this, this is germane. He said, what do they have to do with Christians at all? Um, the other day, I was talking to the university people, actually, right here, um, university people during their lock-in, and I mentioned that we're going to be talking about pirates, and they said, in church history class, why are you talking about pirates? So, um, I think it's particularly germane because nobody seems to think that there's any reason to talk about pirates during church history class. 1718, we've got pirates attacking everybody. There's a reason why I picked 1718, even though um, piracy has been around for a long time. But this is the end of what was called the, the golden age of piracy. That this last surge of, of, of a big wave of piracy. Like I said, piracy has been around since people had ships. As long as somebody's got a ship with cargo that's got good stuff in it, there will always be somebody who goes, I don't have good stuff, I have guns, and I want your stuff. I mean, that's, that's just logic, right? As long as somebody has something good, and you've got a gun, then that means you've got something good, right? Because you'll just take their stuff. If you remember, we talked about the Vikings. A lot of what the Vikings did was piracy, not just ransacking coasts, but attacking ships, taking their stuff. Um, St. Patrick was captured by Irish pirates back in 402 AD, right? So, I mean, piracy has been around for a long time. When we think of pirates, we tend to think of this late 17th century, early 18th century guys with peg legs and eye patches and stuff. But that's because the last big surge of piracy was at this time. It is still going on today. We'll talk about that in a sec. But um, there's this big surge of piracy in the early 1600s, especially in what was called the Spanish Main, that, that all those Spanish colonies there in, in the Caribbean. Specifically, when the Dutch Protestants attempted to overthrow the Spanish Catholics in the Netherlands, because remember for a long time it was the Spanish Netherlands, so Catholic Spain was in charge of the Netherlands, the Dutch love their Protestants, and the Catholics are like, nope, you're all going to be you're all going to be Catholics. It's all going to be this big Catholic thing. During the Eighty Years' War uh, that culminated the, at the beginning of the 1600s, the Dutch started saying, tell you what, we'll pay you to go attack Spanish ships, to go attack Spanish ports. Uh, anything that we can do to undermine the Spanish and undermine Catholics, that's worth doing, they'd say. So English and Dutch pirates are attacking Spanish ports in the New World, partly because when you're attacking here, the Spanish Navy is way over here, right? So you're far away from their main points of, of protection. But also because these are specifically Catholic ports. And so anything that the Protestants could do to attack the Catholics, they were willing to do. So even at this surge, in the beginning of the 1600s, there's a, a religious wars context to the piracy. There's a reason why they're specifically targeting Catholics. In fact, have you heard, uh, uh, ever heard of, of Henry Morgan? It's your birthday, I'll do it. There's <laughs> a, a whole series of commercials about that. Anyway, Henry Morgan is a, is a British privateer. He's, he's essentially a pirate who's being paid by England to attack ships. And so he made it a point to attack not only Catholic ports and things, but to use priests and nuns as human shields, to burn Catholic churches. He had a total focus on Catholicism as he is doing his piracy. In everything that he did, he, he wasn't just, I want to take your stuff. He was trying to pound out Catholicism every step of the way. So it's hard not to talk about pirates when I'm talking about church history, because at this stage in particular, there's such a fundamental part of what's going on. How are people fighting each other over theological things? Sure, there are people 
sitting in, in, in conferences barking at one another. There are people who are writing letters and writing books saying, I think your theology is horrible. But there's also pirates on the high seas that are being pointed at other churches so that they can attack one another. And the Spanish are doing the same thing. They're, they're using pirates to, to attack British uh, ports, specifically um, around England. This is also, this early 1600s is also the, the, the era where the classic term buccaneer is, is coined. Does anybody know what a buccaneer is? Or where that comes from? You've heard the term buccaneer, right? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Tampa Bay. Yeah. Um, but you know, buccaneer is another, another name for pirates, but it comes from their habit of roasting meat on wooden buccans, like the, uh, the, the, the Native Americans of, of Brazil call them. These structures here, they call Bucans or bucans, and so somebody who uses those to roast their meat, like the natives do, is a bucaneer, a buccaneer. By the way, the, the Haitians had something very similar, and they refer to it as a barbacoa, from which we get our word barbecue. Right. So if you're out barbecuing something, you can rightfully call yourself a buccaneer, right? <laughs> which you know. I say that because, you know, it's like, well, I'm a barbecuer. Oh, that's nice. No, I'm a buccaneer. Really? Well, check it out. I got a hibachi. That makes me a buccaneer. All right, anyway. Around this time, pirates also took kind of a more international flair. It's not just around Europe, and it's not just in the Spanish main over here. They started doing what became known as the Pirate Round. The British Admiralty, the Navy of, of, uh, of the Netherlands, etc., they all encourage pirates to not only attack here, but to come down even from New York, come down along uh, South America, down around uh, Africa, and attack as many ships as they could here in the Indian Ocean. And then come back around and do the whole thing again. And just keep doing this round and taking goods over to Europe and to, and to the Americas. Why do you think they're specifically asking them to attack in this area? Ships from the Far East there you go, because this is how, if you are a Portuguese or a Spanish Catholic ship, you're coming in this way. And so they're like, yep, yeah, we want you to keep swooping around and attack as many Spanish and Portuguese ships as you possibly can in the Indian Ocean. Um, everything they possibly can. They also were attacking Muslim ships, because if you remember, there's still a large Ottoman Empire influence over here in, in Eastern Europe. So they're like, anything you can do to destabilize the Ottomans, Anything that you can do to torque off the Spanish and the Portuguese and take their stuff is totally worth doing. So please, keep doing this attack over here. Not only, not only did they just get tons of profits from this, because this was Spain and Portugal's big money uh, uh, pit. They're not, not money pits. What's the opposite? Uh, place. Money place. There you go. Thank you for your help. <laughs> where they get a lot of money, okay? This is where they get a lot. Thank you, everybody. Everybody's sitting there looking at me going, I don't know. Um, money pit. Money place. Money tree. Money. Yes. This is where they get a lot of stuff. High profit. High profit area. Mother look. Now you're helpful. Thank you. Where were you 30 seconds ago? So. Not only did this do a good job of getting a lot of money, not only did this undermine Catholic missionary um, efforts over there in the East, but it also created the very first permanent European settlement on Madagascar because the pirates wanted a home base. Over here, they've got lots of places, Port Royal, etc., that they're, they're in. Over here, they've got different places in, in England. But when you're on the other side of the world, you kind of need a home port. And so they took over Madagascar. It was a pirate kingdom. Now, Daniel Defoe wrote that it was led by a guy named Captain Mission. We don't have any other records of this guy, so we don't know if he actually exists or not. But his first mate, who we do have records of in other things, himself was a former Jesuit, the first mate, uh, Caraccioli. And they named it Libertalia. And this is their flag. This is the pirate flag of the pirate kingdom of Libertalia. They're willing to kill and steal your stuff. Right, because that's unprecedented in, in Europe, right? Yeah. Nobody else in Europe ever says, I'm a Christian, but I'll kill you slowly and take everything. You go, oh, that's pretty much what the Spanish Inquisition has devolved into, isn't it? Hey, you've got good stuff. I think you're probably a heretic. And we'll just confiscate all your stuff. 
and then we'll figure out why you're a heretic. But yes, to the to the pirates of Libertalia, the idea is they they're like total liberty. We want you to be totally free, but all of this under God's provision. We are doing this for God's sake. I think it's kind of it's kind of significant that the first pirate kingdom in the world specifically says we want every time somebody looks at our flag to think of God and freedom. Freaky when you think about it, but it's not just peg legs, scallywags. You know, it's it's people saying um, I, I want to actively, dramatically do what I think I feel like I want to do all the time. But that doesn't mean I'm not, in my mind, wanting to honor God in what I'm doing. Again, it's hard to picture. It's hard to picture in today's society, people who would say, "I really believe in God, and I think it's important," and yet I don't always do everything He wants me to do. Try to wrap your head around that concept that there may be, there may be groups of people that still do what they want to do, even if they believe in God. So, first permanent. Christian presence in the area is pirates. Pirates actually brought Christianity to Madagascar. And so people go, why are you talking about piracy in church history? This is why. This is why. Because it's complicated. People are thinking complicatedly. It's not just good guys and bad guys, monks who are Christians and other people who are secular. It's more muddled than that. So, um, oh yeah, in, in fact, uh, a famous pirate rounder guy named Henry Every specifically saw himself as a crusader against Muslims by taking slaves in the Indian Ocean. I think God probably looked at him and said, don't be on my side. You know, please don't do this and say you're doing this for Jesus because it's really bad. But it tells you something about the mindset is that there at least at least some of these people are, are thinking, yeah, even this honors God. At least I can justify to myself that this honors God. Kind of a different way of looking at things. Anyway, for that matter, a little bit later on, a pirate named Revenue, Revenue, I, I, I don't know French, Revenue, Revenue de Luçon, anyway, was famous for regularly praying with his men, having them sing Te Deum, which is to God be the glory, whenever they'd have a victory, and trying to convert the natives of Nicaragua. Because he's a pirate, right? He's like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean I don't love Jesus. And so we get together, we have prayer meetings and Bible studies on, on the decks. We take everybody's stuff, and then we sing to God be the glory for us taking all their stuff. When we landed in Nicaragua, we found out that the natives weren't Christian. What's up with that? We're changing that. Different mindset. That still seems like what happened a lot of times with Joshua or, yeah. or something, you know, some well, of their books back in the Old Testament. Yeah, I look at Samson and I go, this guy was an absolute jerk. He's a blunt instrument. And God goes, yeah, I could totally use that. I could totally use a blunt instrument against the Philistines. Samson's wrong motivations, God, like, yep, I can still point him that way. Just like God said, Pharaoh's wrong motivations, I can still totally use that. So yeah, the first Protestant mission to Nicaragua is pirates. Weird sort of world. Okay, piracy takes this, because I started off by talking about 1718, we're getting there. Piracy takes another huge upswing in the beginning of the 1700s thanks to this sudden increase in trained seamen. All of a sudden you have tons of trained sailors trained to fight on the ocean because of a specific event. Queen Anne's War! Good for you! Because remember I said Queen Anne's War is important, right? And nobody remembers Queen Anne's War. Sailors are, are being trained to be fighting on the ocean. They, all these different uh, countries make all these new ships, throw them out there, fight this big war, and then suddenly go, okay, we're done. Everybody just go do something else. I'm, this is what I do. I just spent the last five years doing nothing but fighting on the ocean. Yeah, go be a farmer or something. Or I can just take everybody else's stuff because I got a ship and I've been trained to fight in the ocean. So yeah, this huge, huge upswing in piracy. They didn't have a very good um, reintegration program for their military. Not so much. Not so much. Because we keep like running into do. that. Yeah, like we do. Uh, yeah, do kids keep running into this throughout history? Have you been noticing how many times you have a big war followed by a lot of insurrections? Why? Because you got a lot of people with, 
with pointy things and guns who have been trained to use them, who suddenly have nothing else to do but take other people's stuff. Well, after Queen Anne's War, you've got all these guys going, um, what do we do with this ship? Oh, I hope we still keep doing what we've just been doing, and just do it for ourselves. Okay. By the way, I should clarify, very few pirates actually flew this flag. Okay? This is what you always think about with pirates. Very few people, because they all wanted to be individual, they wanted you to see the flag and go, oh, that's Floyd, right? That's Captain Bucky. We know him. We're scared of that guy. In fact, Henry Avery, the guy we were just talking about, flew a red flag, because that's what a lot of privateers flew. If you were under the, under the auspices of a government, a lot of times you flew a red flag so that everybody knew it was legal, right? Because that's the way that works. All of a sudden they go, oh, oh. It's okay if you take our stuff, guys. It's totally legal. Anyway, so that's what happened in World War II, right? That's right. And 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 like when you go to when we were in Korea or, or Vietnam, all of a sudden people are, oh, you can't shoot those guys. They have a red cross on their helmet, right? Yeah. I mean, especially once you get in the last several wars, people have, have totally disregarded that whole red cross thing. They don't. They they aim for the medics. So anyway, this particular flag that we tend to look at, the oh, pirate flag. This is flown by a guy named Black Sam Bellamy, who was the wealthiest pirate of, of all time. The best set of stuff that he's ever gotten. By the way, we t when you think of pirates, you tend to think of guys that like sink ships and kill all their captives and bury all their treasure, right? Pirates didn't bury their treasure, they spent it. Why would you bury it? It doesn't accrue interest, it doesn't buy you grog. You don't do that. Okay. They tended not to uh, mistreat or kill all their prisoners. Because you want those people to go back and tell people, be scared of Captain Floyd. Just give them your stuff. Right? You want your notoriety to go. If, if you killed everybody who ever saw your flag, then who cares what your flag looks like? Because nobody's going to go back and go, ooh, that's Captain Floyd. Um, so you want them to go back and tell people, to just if you just give them your stuff, he lets you go. If you fight him, that's when you die. But if you just give them all of your stuff, it's great. But that's what you want. And then third, they don't sink ships. Because they're like, well, I can either use this ship and become a new pirate ship, or we have to get these witnesses back to a port where they'll actually tell people about us, leaving their ship. You guys go, take this back. Plus, pirates like the ocean being filled with ships, right? You want that. You want ships with lots of good stuff in them. So the idea that you go, oh, a pirate burns a ship and kills all the captives and then buries the blue, you go, yeah, none of that because that would not make sense for what they're trying to do. Business model. Think business model. He was notorious for being really nice. He's really kind to his to his prisoners. Everybody's like, oh, he's so polite. Well, he was a Christian. This guy, well, yeah, probably. I mean, but it is interesting, because you sit there and you go, the wealthiest pirate of all time was the nicest guy to his prisoners. Yep. Business model. Still died in 1717 at the age of 28. The whole, like, grizzled old pirate, you go, not usually. The whole sexy pirate thing? So not. <laughs> there, were, there was no such thing as sexy pirate back then. This flag slightly dissuaded. He's looks swarthy, you're right. Okay. This derivation of the flag is flown by a guy named Charles Vane, who was kind of the flip side of Bellamy. This is one of the most brutal pirates ever. Killed not only the people on the ships that he took, but killed his own men. Loved to torture people. Absolute jerk of a human being. This flag was also flown by his quartermaster, Captain Jack, Calico Jack uh, Racklin, who took Vane's ship from him in a mutiny. Why? Because Vane is a jerk. He's like, you tend to shoot your own people when you're in a bad mood? Yeah. How about we make him not our captain? Who's with me in making him not our captain? Yeah, that's a good call. Why haven't we done this already? Why did we serve this guy anyway? It's not like you're like, man, I just don't like our CEO, but what are you going to do? It's like, we're pirates! Shoot him! You just get him off the ship! So, he took Vane's ship from him in 1718 in a mutiny. Calico Jack also is famous because he seduced a woman named Anne Bonney, the wife of one of his shipmates, who became one of the first female pirates. There weren't that many of them. By the way, if you took me a while, if you Google Anne Bonny, you get a lot of like sexy pirate pictures. Oh, it's a pirate chippy. She's a hottie, and you go, 
No. No, not a lot of sexy pirates going. So this is this is more of a contemporary painting of of uh, Anne Bonny. She's not not a pretty woman. Um, but still kind of famous because, like I said, there's just not a lot of female pirates running around, as you might imagine. This flag, different kind of flag, is flown by a guy named Edward Lowe. Yeah, that's a bloody skeleton. You see that coming over the horizon, you go, give me stuff, just give me stuff, give me stuff. This guy was psychotic. He got into uh, piracy not just for the stuff, but because he liked torturing people. Figured out all sorts of really nasty ways to kill people very, very slowly. Not a nice person. Again, so on top of just this looking scary, if you knew that this is a guy who enjoyed skinning people alive and tying them to his mask so that everybody could see the body still alive, and this is the flag that you saw, you start like just tossing your stuff. You know, it's like, put it in a raft, point it toward him, just go, just go. Stay away from the Reavers. That's right, this guy is nuts. This is a completely different flag, obviously, from Black Bart Roberts, one of the most one of the most successful pirates of all time. He took more than 470 ships in his career. Now he wasn't quite as wealthy as Black Sam, who got like lots and lots of stuff, but he was extremely successful in terms of how many ships he took. And yes, he's the inspiration of the the name Dread Pirate Roberts in in uh, Princess Bride. I mean, how many people were like, oh, it's like in Princess Bride? Okay, thank four of you. Okay. The rest of you, go run Princess Bride. Anyway. Okay. But he was, this guy is, is specifically a devout Christian who refused to allow his crew to, to work on the Sabbath. He's like, every Sunday, we're not doing any work. We're having Bible studies. We're singing hymns. That's what we're doing. Um, he also refused to allow them ever to gamble or drink because he said those are sinful vices and God doesn't like them. So, I was going to say, more than one historian has said, so his crew wasn't drunk all the time, and they were disciplined? That's probably why they were like the most successful pirate crew ever. Everybody else is like, this is duh, ah, you know, drunk all the time. His discipline, sharp, everything's on top of it. You're like, yeah, you guys are a well-oiled machine. These guys work well. Anybody who wants to be on this crew, anybody who stays with this guy, you can see where they're like, no. I like this business model. This totally works. The 470 ships he was fed. Well, let's see. the other ships. Uh, well, he didn't. He didn't keep 470 ships. He didn't have like a big pirate flotilla. He took them, took all their stuff, and most of them he let go. Though he did have, he did have a small fleet by the time he was done. But he insisted on wearing this big diamond cross around his neck. So I don't know if you can see here, but he dressed really nice. He big red brocade jacket and things, really tall guy, but he was famous for wearing this big giant diamond encrusted cross, because he's like, I never want to forget that I'm a Christian, I never want to forget God, and anything that we do, and why we do it, I want to make sure that in everything, we pray before every raid, we pray after every raid, we, we have... Just like football. Just like football! <laughs> okay, boom, snap the guy's leg, spike the ball, for you. It's like... It's like we crushed our adversaries for Jesus. But yeah, I'm telling you, pirates, I mean, not every pirate was like this. There are obviously people like Edward Lowe, who's just a slimeball as a pirate. But some of these pirates are genuinely devout. They're doing this for reasons that you really wouldn't ever think of. And yet, Ben brings up a good point. We have some of the same mindsets. We just don't apply them the same way. Even today we say, the idea of defeating our enemies in combat and giving God the glory. We do that, right? It's just that our combat is justified. It's okay because uh, we're more than we're playing Washington. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. Deal. Um, it's okay because we're America and we're fighting bad guys. We want to give God glory. It's not like pirates who are universally just bad. We, we're fighting on God's side. And so it's good for us to do this. We have the same mindset. You're just not used to applying it quite this way. Which is why I'm trying to broaden your horizons a smidge bit. In fact, there's a French Dominican missionary named Jean-Baptiste Lebas, who the guy who's overseeing all of the Catholic missionaries in the Spanish Main. He sailed with pirates. He made it a point to sail uh, with a, a couple of them, specifically a French guy named Captain Daniel, 
He preached on the deck. He led masses, provided communion. Daniel regularly asked him to pray before their raids. The head of all Catholic missions in the Spanish main <coughs> sailed with pirates. So Spanish he, pirates. He, he Spanish sailed pirates. with pirates uh, in the area of which he was trying to be a missionary, so people would come, the pirates would come and take their stuff, and then he would witness to them afterwards. Like, pirates would take British stuff. Pirates. Um, these weren't officially privateers, but they would think of them as if you can have a church sanctioned privateer as opposed to a, a, a national sanctioned privateer, they're attacking like British, Dutch pirates. British and Dutch ships, that sort of thing. Right. They didn't usually thought, attack French. I just thought French. the indigenous people are going to be like, I, I want Jesus after you just took all our stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure that that's the way most of the indigenous people felt about the Spaniards in general. Well, yeah. you know, and, and, and French in general there is like, uh, we didn't ask for you to come and tell us about Jesus. No, 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 you're all naked and having other gods. You wanted this. Be my slave and learn about Jesus. Okay, and thank me for now. it. Who's the Catholics and who's the Protestants now? French, think specifically the French and Spanish are Catholic, the Dutch and English are Protestant. Okay, the Dutch and English are trying to obliterate Catholic. And Catholics are trying to obliterate Protestant. Okay. Realize, and this is still only about 200 years since, the, since uh, uh, Martin Luther had pounded on the door in Wittenberg, right? So, yes, I mean, it's nice and, and solidified, but there's still, there's still that mindset of, it's still new, it's still just a fad, we can stop this. Okay, this, though, is the original <coughs> Jolly Roger. This is the first flag that was actually referred to as the Jolly Roger, flown by the most famous and ruthless pirate of the bunch of them. Anybody know who this was? Blackbeard. Captain Edward Blackbeard Teach. He was like six foot 100. He was a huge guy, big, tall guy. Well, burning brands into his hair and beard, chewed broken glass before going to battle so his teeth were bloody. This guy. Big old scary guy. Okay, so you see this, he's like 6'6". Six, six. This big tall guy with burning hair and bloody teeth with this flag coming at you. Yeah, you go, give me stuff, give me stuff, give me stuff, right? Big scary guy. Could have been in the picture, yes. Uh, it could have been, all we know is that he that he wove the brands into his hair, so at least the the, the brand, when, and you know what a brand is? I don't mean like a cattle brand. Okay, this one. Pardon me? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's smoking all the time. And so, or even, uh, depending on what, it, it can even be like a, almost like a long fuse or something, like a, like a like bit of rope looking thing. It's terrible, I would think so. So the idea is that as he's walking up, he's constantly, especially his head, he's constantly surrounding in smoke and, surrounding smoke and little bits of red flame and bloody teeth. Scary looking guy. Talked about working for the devil all the time. And it's all for effect. There's not one, not one report of him ever mistreating a captive. He was incredibly democratic as a captain. Took everything up as a vote. I mean, he, big and scary, big and scary. But he didn't do anything big and scary. He's like, pardon me? Stardust. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen Stardust. Um, do you have to tell me about that reference later? <clears throat> But this is the ultimate example of, if I bark loud enough, I never have to bite. Right? I'm big and scary. You don't want to mess with me. You don't want to mess with me. Oh, I don't want to mess with him. That was really helpful, wasn't it, guys? Okay, let's take their stuff. <laughs> Blackbeard. In fact, he named his, his ship Queen Anne's Revenge as a nod to his time in the Royal Navy during yes. Queen Anne's War. That's right, because that's important. He served in the Royal Navy as a privateer in Queen Anne's War. And afterwards, he's like, well, why don't I just keep doing this? I'll call it Queen Anne's Revenge. They taught me to do this. I'm going to keep on doing this. I'm telling you, Queen Anne's War is important. It changed history. Oh, 1718, Teach actually accepted the king's pardon to stop all acts of piracy. And so he stopped. He became an official privateer. Uh, he attacked French ships on behalf of England, settled into life an English port in North Carolina. He's done with being a pirate. Everything's great. Still gets to be a privateer. Still gets to do all of his stuff. Gets paid by England. Owns a nice little spread in North Carolina. Got married. Got married. Life is good. Reminds me of like 
Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Except that Virginia didn't like it. They're like, oh, I don't want Blackbeard living nearby. I mean, the property values of the colonies just went down. <laughs> Seriously, that's the way the governor's thinking. He's like, I don't want him around. And North Carolina's like, it's okay. He's working for us now. We kind of like having him around. Like, I don't like him nearby. He could attack us. No, no, no he's not going to attack us. We're paying him to attack the other people. He's actually technically defending us. Virginia's like, yeah, no. Okay, tell you what. I order against the king's pardon and against the wishes of North Carolina, Virginia orders that Teach is going to be captured or executed because we don't want him nearby. We don't like those people in the neighborhood. So the end of November of 1718, Teach is caught by surprise. Go figure. They didn't expect that he's being attacked by his own people. By Robert Maynard and his crew and was killed in battle. In fact, we're told he was shot five times and slashed more than 20 times in the battle before he finally died. So kind of a tough fellow, Edward Teach. Teach's corpse was decapitated, his severed head was hung by the Maynard's bowsprit as a trophy, and everybody just goes, seriously, Blackbeard? Blackbeard's dead? This guy who everybody was afraid of, he's like, he's this mythic figure, and everybody hears he's dead. It kind of takes the wind out of the sails of, of, of the golden age of piracy. All of a sudden people are like, I guess, I guess they're not invincible. Huh. And it all starts kind of falling apart. By 1726, when William Fly and his crew are hanged, piracy pretty much gone. I mean, there's still pirates. There are always going to be pirates. But it's pretty much over, this big swell of piracy. And just one last time, continue making the point. Fly claimed to have been coming to faith uh, before he got captured by reading a popular book called A Warning, to P uh, a Warning Peace to Unbelievers or The Converted Sinners. He, he had been a pirate, he read this book, became a Christian, so by the time that uh, he was captured, he's like, no, I'm actually a devout believer in Christ. Had a Bible study in prison, re regularly read his Bible, regularly read the book, Converted Sinners, while in prison. In fact, he re met regularly with Cotton Mather in prison, and they had Bible studies together, because that's what pirates are, right? Some of them very nasty, some of them very devout. It's a weird time in history. Now, even a hundred years later, though, You've got pirates like Jean Lafitte. Does that name sound familiar to you? Jean Lafitte? He'll be coming up more in like the War of 1812. So this, this guy becomes important. Yeah. Okay, so with North Carolina saying, you know, Blackbeard's working for us, and Virginia saying, oh, we don't like it. I mean, is this like, is this more, is this also like a seed of colonial uh, pride and the fact that they're like, we're so far away from the king, we, we can just not do what the king says. That last bit in particular, yes. The, and get the, away with it. Yep, North Carolina even specifically said he got a king's pardon, and Virginia, Spotswood said, yep, the king's all the way over there. Who cares? Who cares what the king says? So that's a big deal. That is a big deal. Very good point. I hadn't even thought about it in those terms. But yeah, it, it is a big deal that they're, they're, they're starting to go, if a king is on the other side of the ocean, why do I care what he says? Yeah, but the king has an order here, and this is legal. I don't care. Um, oh. Did the king respond in any way? No, they didn't care. They were, Spotwood's right. I mean, the king's like, huh? Well, that's a shame. Kind of nice having him do that. Yeah. yeah, but um, okay. At least he won't be. You know, at least he won't be attacking any British ships. So nobody really cared. I mean, even North Virginia went. Hurrah! And that was about as far as they could go, because they didn't have any kind of central assembly that North Carolina could do anything about it against Virginia. They just kind of went, I wish you hadn't done that. The Nations wasn't around you. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so you got, like I said, you've got pirates a, a, a century later, and even today we still have, as Randy was saying, we still have pirates floating around today. Anytime you have disputed waters, anytime you have, uh, have areas like off the coast of Somalia where nobody's patrolling these areas regularly, you're going to have pirates. Of course, nowadays we're patrolling the waters off of Somalia a little bit more after some of this stuff. But anybody that says, all I really need is a dinghy and a, and a bazooka, all I need to do is be able to say, I can blow a hole in your ship or you can give me stuff. And you can be a pirate. So, it's, uh, it's still around. Anyway, same year that, that I would say, the same year that Edward Teach became a civilian in a lot of ways, became a privateer, same year that, that, that a lot of piracy was starting to, to, to pop there. The Ottomans aren't attacking anybody. This Ottoman Empire that has been trying so hard to attack, they've, they've laid siege to Vienna twice and lost twice big. They're not attacking anybody. 
They had a treaty with Austria and with Venice, the two main powers that they've been bumping up against, and they nestle into Europe. And they're like, okay, we're just going to be a European power. Enough with this trying to attack Europe. We're going to, at least for the time being, be happy with what we've got. And they settled into what became known as the tulip period. Tulips are all the rage in, in Europe. Everybody loves their tulips. This is a big thing. And pound for pound, they're more expensive than gold in Europe at this time. It's, it's the saffron of his age, okay? Hey, there's always some... Beanie Babies were expensive. But there's, there's a reason for anything stupid that people want. You get free baseball cards with your gum, and now they're worth thousands of dollars and stuff. So the Speculation. Dutch were making out like... Okay. They eventually got tulips. Oh, eventually. But this is the period where they got those tulips. Um, Actually, there's a whole big, there's a whole big, if you really want to get into a really weird, interesting part of history, there's a whole big thing going on in the 1600s about tulips. People sending tulip spies to try to steal bolts from other nations and stuff. <laughs> they, have, they literally have tulip wars in the 1600s. At one point, in 1637, they had this dot-com bubble pop thing. Because tulips, speculation, had risen to the point where, by modern standards, a tulip bulb would cost roughly $500,000 for a bulb. So do you understand why they're like, if, if you're a pirate, and you're under orders, if you're a pirate and you found a ship that had tulip bulbs on them, you're like, you, you don't torch anything. You just take the bulbs, you take them all off, and you kill everybody on that ship. You make sure... Nobody knows that you took those tulips and you safely bring them back to us. I mean, there were standing orders about tulips. You know whatever you want with this. Yeah, yeah, send them off so they know. If you take the tulips, nobody can know that you took those because this is a big deal. It's like, it's like we don't want the Nazis to know that we got an Enigma device. Don't say nothing about it. I'm telling you, this is huge back then. In fact, uh, uh, Charles McKay wrote a book in 1841 called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. All about this. All about this moment in history. It was the first book to examine what we would today call mob mentality. The idea that when you get a bunch of people together, they make really irrational decisions. A person could make some dumb decisions. People can make monumentally dumb decisions. Y'all together can do far more idiocy than any one of you can, and you're more than just the sum of your own individual idiocies. You get together, you can do some serious damage for rationality in the world. First time that that's ever come up, first time was about the whole tulip thing. Anyway, so, the Ottomans say, nope, we're going to nestle into this, we're going to groom our tulips. All of a sudden, in, in, the, in the 1600s and into the 1700s, you have a lot of paintings of tulips. Tulips are in the fabrics of things, people wearing gowns with tulips and stuff. But they start likening themselves to the, to the Europeans. They start considering themselves, instead of Islamic invaders, we're seeing ourselves as a European superpower. Remember how the Muslims had done that in Spain? Like, I don't know, a thousand years before. Uh, they'd been sitting there going, you know, we're starting to think of ourselves, yes, we're Muslims, yes, we're, we're Moors, we're coming from Mauritania, but we're starting to see ourselves as just Spanish kings alongside the other Spanish kings. Here, the Ottomans are like, well, we're Europeans. We're going to start dressing more European. We're going to adopt some European styles. We're going to model our courts after Europeans, especially like in Istanbul. It's starting to look much more European about things, just like France or Austria. Um, they started trading openly with other European powers, and the other European powers were trading with them. They're starting to treat each other as if they're just peers here in Europe. Which makes sense. The Ottomans are like, man, we've been here for like a century. I mean, how long we got to be here before you just see us as neighbors instead of invaders? When you stop invading, I'll well, yeah, that. you yeah. as an invader. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the poor Greeks go, uh, we never asked you here. I don't care how long you stay. You're, you're, we kind of like you to leave. But anyway. 1719. The son of the Jacobite Rebellion 2. i got to keep calling it like this. Because last time we talked about the Jacobite Rebellion, if you remember, um, why, okay, why do, I, why do I call it the son of the Jacobite Rebellion? Anybody remember? Uh, this is what I was calling it last time. James, son of James. James, son of James. The first Jacobite Rebellion, James I, this is, or, or, actually James II. This is 
James Stewart, his son, trying to do this. And we've already seen the son of the Jacobite Rebellion. James Stewart has already tried to do something back in 1715. So this is him trying again. So this is the sequel to the sequel. So you've got King Philippe V of Spain, who used to be Bourbon Philippe of France. So you've got this French king of Spain, right? Okay, so Philippe, who's now Felipe, because he's living in Spain, settled in a king. James Francis Edward Stewart says, now it's time. I'm going to try this again. Spain's going to help me. We're totally kicking it this time. We're taking England for me, as it should have been. Felipe sends 27 ships carrying 5,000 Spanish soldiers to Britain. We're totally taking it back. James is like, yeah, should have gone to me. Shouldn't have gone to this gay or Ludwig German guy. No, I should be king of England. Me! James is one of these guys that you go, you're just a perennial loser at, at, at everything. You, you, you torque off all of your allies. You never seem to win your rebellions. You never seem to plan them very well. Everything always goes against you. God politics seems to be against him. Storms scatter all but two of the ships. A grand total of 300 soldiers actually arrive. Little token force. That's not good. He's like, okay, 300 Spaniards against England. <laughs> We're going to lose. We're so going to lose. But they still tried. They're going to lose. Those got quickly and decidedly routed at Glen Shield. Remember we talked about that last week, that that's the battle where Rob Roy fought, and, uh, and they all lost. Anyway, secondly, not only were the Spanish opposed by England, but they were also opposed by, do you want to take a guess? France! Exactly! <laughs> the new five-year-old king, Felipe's Bourbon cousin, Louis XV i.e. a king who hasn't got an heir, or an heir coming anytime soon, right? So even though the French are like, yeah, we're both Catholics, yeah, we're family, you're a cousin, yeah, this is great, yeah, we're the ones that pushed for you to be king. Yeah, we're going to fight against you. Why? Because Spain's doing well right now. And France goes, well, we like you as a powerful ally. We don't want you to be a competitor. As long as Spain is that kind of second-rate buddy to the south, west, we're cool with that. Because, you know, France is the going power. Spain, we want you to be strong. That's great. Well, and if James takes over England, then he's got an ally in Spain, and that leaves France out of the cold. You got it. And France goes, we just got a kid on the throne, and he doesn't have any heirs, and Spain is totally kicking it. Okay, we need to take them down a couple pegs. European history in a nutshell. You're my friend unless you're doing well. Then I have to hurt you. Then we're okay. But then I'll have to hurt you. But then we're okay. It's diplomacy! It's a game of diplomacy. You're my buddy. I'll, I don't know. There's a lot of blue on the board now. I need to take that down. So Catholic Bourbon Louis XV actually makes an alliance with Protestant German Hanover Georg Ludwig of England. Because there's a German who's king of England, right? Frenchman king of Spain, German king of England. Anyway, to stand against Catholic Bourbon Felipe and Catholic James Stewart. So... This is a weird time in history, right? You've got, the, you've got Catholic Bourbons siding with Protestant Hanovers against Catholic Bourbons because it's politically expedient for them to do so. This starts getting really freaky really quick. The rebellion lasts about a minute and a half. I don't even know why they kept going. You would have thought, they're like, well, we don't have France's help. We've got like 300 guys. Maybe this isn't a good time. But James is like, it's my time! It's like, oh, it's so not. No, James just felt like God was behind him. I'm pretty sure God, God was not. <laughs> pretty sure God was in front of him going, no, James, no, no. I wonder what the better informed colonists in America thought about all this. Now that's where speedy communication comes in, because most colonists in America find, only find out about this stuff long after it's over. So, you know, you find six months after the, after you find out, oh, there was a rebellion on Thursday, six months ago. Really? How long did it last? Thursday. Huh. Did they, did they win? No. Huh. Hey, the tobacco crop is in. Great. It is, seriously, up until really the end of the 19th century, up until you get mass electronic media, nobody cared about stuff like that. Who cares about world politics? What I care about is stuff that's going on locally. That's the only thing that matters to me. All the stuff that we now make, just the local color in the news, the little five minute we got time to kill, that's the stuff that was major news back then, because that was the stuff you actually could do something about. 
The stuff going on in Arian Jaya, you don't care about, because you don't live anywhere near Arian Jaya. You're never going to live anywhere near Arian Jaya, so who cares? Of course, if you were near Arian Jaya, the stuff going on in Illinois, you'd go, I don't even know what an Illinois is, so who cares? So, all right. So, just to make out, just to point out how ridiculous is it, in 1744, a grown-up, Louis XV, launches his own version of the Jacobite Rebellion. He's like, ah, yeah, I will support the Jacobites. <sighs> Supporting James's son, and we talked about this guy before. Anybody remember? Bonnie Prince Charlie. He's like, yep, we got a new Scottish king. Let's do that one. We'll, we'll help that one in. And as you know, the Scots took over England, right? No. Storm sunk those ships, too. Apparently, it's just not a... It, you don't realize how, how bad it is storm-wise, around England. It's an amazing... Remember the Spanish Armada just got destroyed by storms? We've got two different Jacobite rebellions coming over from the mainland to England, get destroyed by storms. There's a reason why... There's a reason why it's hard to conquer England, even in diplomacy. It's hard to conquer England because it's hard to get there! So, anyway. In fact, um, storms also almost stopped D-Day from the people coming from England to France. They... They almost didn't do it, but they had one tiny little window of opportunity between storms. And Eisenhower's like, do it, do it, do it. So scooch in there during the, during the storms. So, <sighs> weather. Anyway, 1720. Theodorus Jacobus Friedenhuisen preached. And all of you go, yay, the Traveling. Traveling preacher. He's a German. He became ordained in the Dutch Reformed Church. Yeah. Is there a preacher today by that last name? Um, there might be. So, I don't know. There have been a lot of... This guy had a big family, and all of them ended up being ministers. So, there, there's a lot of foiling houses, foiling Husens, uh, and, and things. But he, he was called to pastor the Dutch Reformed Churches in New Jersey. So, he came over, and when he did, he found that a lot of his church members weren't really necessarily Christians. They were just church members. They just were sitting there in a the Dutch Reformed Church saying, I was born in a Dutch Reformed Church, I was baptized in a Dutch Reformed Church, that makes me a Christian. And he's like, no, it doesn't, actually. And so, he began preaching about repentance, about renewal. He's like, if you want to be a Christian, you actually have to have Christ in your heart. You actually have to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That actually has to change the way you live. You can't just be a Christian by sitting in a church building, as we've said so many times, any more than you can be a Buick by sitting in a garage, right? It doesn't just automatically turn you into one. You need to be changed into a Christian. So, Fredling Hughes keeps expressing this, and people keep going, what's wrong with you? So it intertwines the basic doctrinal foundations of the Dutch Reformed Church with how to live from the pietists. Remember when we talked about the pietists? This idea of you really have to live this out. You've got to live in such a way that God shows that you care about this stuff. And the discipline of the Puritans. He's like, I, I want I want what he sees as a solid theological underpinning, because the Pietists have the right idea, but they don't always have solid theology. I want the Puritans, though sometimes they just got into the discipline is everything. No, no. I want the whole package. For instance, he's like, okay, we're closing the communion table to anybody who isn't living the way I think they should be living. If you are not living like a Christian, if you don't have a regenerate life going on demonstrably, no communion for you. Okay, that, you say that's not cool. Why? Because he's the one then deciding if you get communion or not. That's right. Who should decide? You should be able to decide whether you get communion or not, right? Whether you're a Christian or not. Now I don't know. Okay, exactly. Oh, I know. For me. But that's the thing. That's the thing. I, I, I'm not saying he did the right thing, but I'm not saying he did the wrong thing. But his argument is, who should be deciding this? The person who says, I'm a Christian because I'm sitting in a church building? They should decide. Membership. Isn't that my membership? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I hear what you're saying, that you go, this guy ha ends up having a lot of power. But he's a pastor. And at this time in history, in these kinds of churches, pastors had a lot of power. Now, I got that's nothing. That's the same thing as, like, Catholic priests. <laughs> it is. Like, I mean, that's... It is. It's very simple. But what, but what he's trying to do is actively force people to stop and think about where they're at with Christ. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt for a moment. Let's say he's a rotten human being. Then having him be the one who decides whether or not you get to take communion, that's 
just horrific. Like you said, that's the worst part of like what the Catholic Church is doing at this moment. Give him the benefit of the doubt for the sake of argument and say he's a really good person. And he's just like, you know what? I have a sense of what, what it means to be a Christian, and unless I think you're a Christian, I really don't think you should be taking communion. I can see why he, what he's doing is, is trying to move people in that direction. Now, what we try to do as a church here is to, I, I don't necessarily close the communion table, but I do say, if you're not a Christian, you shouldn't be taking communion. You know, you should really probably stop and think about that. Because this is something that's a, a family meal for people who are trying to remember what Christ has specifically done in and through them. Right? And so, I do want to still make the same points that he's making. Not that it's works orientation, but if you're not demonstrably living out your faith, perhaps you should stop and think, do I actually have a faith? And if I don't, should I actually be doing this? Stop and chew on that. Or, or don't chew on this. Whatever you want. Okay. But the thing is, he didn't care what people, you know, people were getting really mad at him, saying, how dare you do this? You know? He's like, I don't care. His personal motto, <laughs> I love this, his personal motto is, I don't seek praise and I'm not afraid of blame. It's like, I don't, I'm not doing this for you. Yeah, but we're, we don't like you as a pastor. Don't care. I'm not losing sleep. I'm doing what I genuinely think is the right thing. But we don't like it. I don't care. You called me. You're dumb. <laughs> this, this, you had to know I'm going to do something like this. You're the ones that called me to this ministry. I have a great deal of respect for that. Even if I wouldn't necessarily do things quite the way he did it, I do have a great deal of respect for what he was trying to do. Do you understand this? At least that he's, he's like, I want you to stop and think about this. So he's like, I, I, I'm preaching revival, and revival breaks out. Hundreds of people come to know the Lord. That ripples into ultimately thousands of people coming to know the Lord. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, who we'll talk about soon, cites Freudian Hudson as the beginning of a very great awakening in the United States and in and in England ultimately. Uh, this revival, where over the next couple of decades, hundreds of thousands of people come to know the Lord in really serious, meaningful ways. Edwards goes, yeah, that all began in New Jersey with this guy. So a lot of people, when they talk about the Great Awakening, this huge revival, they go, begun by Jonathan Edwards. Go, okay, you do realize Jonathan Edwards said, no, no I'm, I'm, taking this, I'm taking the ball and rolling with it, but it was started by this guy, this Dutch Reform guy. Yay! Yay. <laughs> It is. <laughs> okay, what's funny is, <laughs> when Edwards was writing about him, he misspelled his name. He had no idea how to say it, so it's like phrasing housey, you know, or something. He just had no idea how to write it. The term Great Awakening, even though technically it was used by Jonathan Edwards, it wasn't officially applied to that movement until 1842 when there was a book called The Great Awakening about this. Although, when we talk about it, um, probably next time. Uh, when, we, when we talk about the Great Awakening, there are still some people today that go, never happened. Just, there was no Great Awakening. Yeah, there were a few people who came to know the Lord, but it wasn't some kind of movement. I think you actually have to work pretty hard to see this not as, as a ripple effect of, of revival. 1721. Robert Walpole becomes Prime Minister, and everybody goes, yay, why should I care? Why should I care about who becomes Prime Minister in England? Actually, he was England's first and longest-running prime minister. That's kind of important. The British look at this guy and say, this guy's kind of important. How many actual prime ministers can you name? Everybody kind of expects everybody's going to know. He's like, Maggie Thatcher and... Oh, no, it started with a B. The current one, uh, and, then the, and then the one during World War II. <laughs> yeah. Blair. Blair, exactly. Blair. Churchill. But, is the bag named after him? Anyway. But the point is, is that it's interesting how many Americans are like, everybody should know our presidents. Do you know any of the prime ministers? Uh, not so much. Anyway. I don't know any of the provinces in Canada either. That's a, a little terrifying. Or any of the states in Mexico? Anyway. Georg Ludwig, George I. 54 years old when he becomes king of England. Doesn't even know how to speak English. Right? What? Well, he's German. He's lived his whole life in Germany. He's a Hanover. He didn't know how to speak English. They bring him in. How well do you think he's going to be able to just step into the role and govern the English? It's like, yeah, I, I've been an absolute man, a monarch over in Hanover. What's an absolute monarch? Kind of like a dictatorship in that he's 
absolutely, unfortunately, in charge of everything. Um, just kind of like in France. It's like you, the king is the one who does all the laws. The king is the one who decides everything. Ultimately, you pounce everything past the king and all of his, his people. I control all the aspects of this. But England is an absolute monarchy. England, all that stuff is done through Parliament. He's like, I haven't got a clue how to work that. How am I supposed to work with Parliament? They're like, oh, you're still technically in charge. We're just the ones that make all the decisions. What? You know, so you got to figure out, how do you do this? He didn't understand the language. He didn't understand the Scottish and the Irish. Boy, did he not understand the Scottish and the Irish. Um, he especially didn't understand the, the British policy on Ireland. Because... 5% of the Irish population is English-descended Protestants. 95% of the Irish population at this time was Irish Catholics. And the 5% ran everything. The 5% controlled everything, controlled all the politics, controlled everything. And the British government officially used starvation on their own subjects as a means of population control, both to keep the population numbers down and to make them follow and do what they wanted them to do. If you don't revolt, we'll occasionally throw you scraps of food. We'll talk more about this next week. So, but Gayor came in as like, you starve your own subjects. Yes. Yeah, I don't get this. I really don't understand how this works exactly. And he didn't understand the basic political structure of Parliament. So to help Georg, help King George, learn how everything works, they developed the role of prime minister, a minister, a servant of the government. And they said, well, there's a high top elected legislative official who's going to be a liaison with the king, between the king and parliament. That way the king will know how everything works. And so that first PM, that first prime minister, is Robert Walpole. In this temporary role, as Georg kind of gets his, his feet wet and learns how to do all this stuff, he held that temporary position for 21 years which kind of makes it not a temporary position, right? Um, establishes as this essential part of the British system. He's still Prime Minister well into George II. Because he's like, no, it, it also helps again that George II uh, didn't know English or anything when he came on board too. So he smooths the transition from George I to George II, remains Prime Minister, kind of changes the way they do things. 1721, the same year that England develops this prime minister to help the new king, a guy named Pyotr Alexeyevich becomes Tsar in Russia and changes everything in Russia. Anybody know another name that you may recognize Pyotr as more familiarly? Peter the Great. Totally, fundamentally changes everything in Russia, which totally, fundamentally starts changing everything throughout Europe specifically about the church. We'll get to that next week. How would you summarize just these three years that we're talking about here? How would you summarize what we've been talking about today? What's going on in the world at the stage in general? Not, don't try to give me all the facts. I never want you to try to remember all the facts. What's the flow? Anything. Everything's changing again. Still killing to make you be something. Yeah, there's still this question of how do I actually get people? How do I actually live out this Christ thing? And how do I get people to be Christian? You have you know pirates going to Nicaragua and Madagascar, making the natives Christian, creating pirate kingdoms and things. You have Theodorus walking around going, how how are you a good solid Dutch Reformed Church and you're not Christians? How is that even working exactly? You have um, wars all over the place as people are trying to force other people to accept them and ultimately their religion. Because remember, why was it that James or James, why is it that they were not allowed to be king? Because there's a specific law in England saying you can't have a Catholic king. Which is why I went to a slightly more distant person in Anne and an even more distant person in Georg because they were Protestants. And so it's like, yeah, this whole... If, how can I force people to be my kind of Christian? It's still going on. How's that working out for them? I mean, is that creating peace in the world? Is that is that creating more of a strong sense of, of Bible-believing Christians? Isn't that what Theodore's found? He's like, well, I'm not finding a lot of Christians here. So how, how should we, 
This is more of a rhetorical question because I want to end on this. How should we try to help people learn to be Christians today? Should we be imposing Christianity on them? Or should we be Christians ourselves? Fair enough. Let's pray. Or you could just be a pirate. Monkey has learned nothing! <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much that you give us your word that doesn't change. You give us your Holy Spirit that doesn't change. You give us your direction that, that always leads truth. I pray, Lord, help us to hear you well. Because obviously, there have been a lot of Christians in history. And a lot of times in our lives where we have just not listened to you. We thought we knew what we were doing. I pray, Lord, help us to glorify you by how we live out our Christianity. Help us to make you, first and foremost, our Lord, and not just our theological precept. Be glorified, Lord. Help us to live that out well. In Jesus' name. Amen.